everyone. Our next guest is David Klugman. We're going to talk about women and empathy, and then we're going to talk about a whole lot of other things too. (laughs) This is one of those winding road shows that I love so much, and obviously you do too since you keep listening to my show. But a little context about David. He is an author. He's also a practicing psychotherapist and a painter and artist. So get to know him as we do these shows together. They'll be fascinating, at least for us anyway, and we hope they will be for you as well. Thanks for joining us. I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, Kristen Walker here. I've got such an awesome guest who's actually going to become a series regular with me. We're calling that series The Feeling Life. And I thought, you know, let's do sort of an intro about what that is, but we also riffed on a different topic around women and empathy. And it was so interesting. I wanted to um, introduce our next guest to you through his thoughts around women and empathy. So David Klugman, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me, Kristen. <laughs> Absolutely. So the feeling life, let's let's get that one, you know, on the table right away. Tell our listeners just um, where that title comes from so we can get some context around some of the topics we'll be talking about with the series. Okay. Well, the the, the feeling life, which is not a phrase I invented, but I did come up with it before I saw other people. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can't prove that. But but anyway, it's not a uh, unique phrase, but the way I use it, I think, is um, it's not so much about it being unique or not. It's, it's about what it does. And it really sheds light on the importance of um, on the feeling life. It's pretty self-explanatory. Right. Um, but it gets it gets complicated. There's some twists and turns in there that as we learn to understand how we can get caught up in them and then understand how not to, there's a great deal of freedom that can be had there where we actually feel more and more more deeply, more intensely, and less neurotically, less, less painfully, less in circles. So it becomes a more productive force. And, and yeah. that's the idea of the feeling life, really. I, and I love the phrase, too, because you know, we're a mental health show and this is a mental health network. And 
there's so much in mental illness that can be wrapped up in feeling a tremendous amount of pain. And some of that is because for some of us, I know for me, uh, there was a lot of pain growing up and there was, um, you know, tremendous amount of trauma. And so I became afraid to feel because I felt like I was just going to be washed up in a river that, you know, out ends up in the ocean of feeling and I'll never escape or be able to wrap, you know, put my hands around that. So you get, I got to a place where I just got very afraid to feel. And yet that is what helps me breathe and have a life. Yes. And I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying because it, it in a way jumps to the third book of the trilogy, which is the more sort of comprehensive book. And, and that's about thought forms, and thought forms are really another way of talking about how we d defend ourselves from our feeling experience and mm -hmm. how we devise these very kind of primitive strategies early on. And, and the, the, the primary mandate of which is nothing like that trauma that just happened is ever going to happen to me again. That's my prime directive, and yet my prime directive at the same time is I must adapt to this world. Hmm. And so that takes a lot of energy to do both of those things. It does. Right? To sort of, you know, try to take the world in, but keep it at bay at the same time. And, and of course, there's variations on that on a spectrum. Um, but I, I think that's a lot of what robs us of the feeling life are these, these traumas that become consolidated and basically internally tell us without us being conscious of it, you don't go here, you don't feel here, don't mm. feel that, and that's it. We keep it right here. Yeah, I mean, I even was thinking about this when you and I had. As if, by the way, as if that didn't cost us individually and collectively anything. Right, exactly. <laughs> We've already had epic conversations where I've thought, oh, I wish the record, you know, we were recording. But so one of our last conversations, I um, was thinking about a time when I was in Florence, Italy, and I had heard about Stendhal syndrome. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing it correctly. And for listeners that don't know what it is, it's also called Florence syndrome. It's a psychosomatic condition involving rapid heartbeat, dizziness, fainting, confusion, and even hallucinations allegedly occurring when individuals become exposed to objects or phenomena of great beauty. I had that happen, and I say it kind of jokingly, but I was in... I was in a um, some place to do with St. Francis of Assisi. It's horrible that I don't remember, but I just became overwhelmed at the beauty of it and thinking about my ex-husband and how I've always called him St. Francis of Assisi. And I literally got dizzy. I had to sit down. I couldn't stop weeping. Uh, and I thought of that when you know we had our last conversation and talking about the feeling life. And that is a, a state it certainly was confusing, but it also was euphoric. I felt like yeah. I opened up in a way by experiencing it, but that's also something that can definitely scare me. So I will keep myself away from things like great art or literature or music because of the fear of getting to that place again. Right. So the idea is that anything sublime or, or great in art, great in quotes, can trigger access to your, your own uh, inward feeling experience that can be very threatening, mm. which, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't surprise us why there have been over the centuries so many strictures on what kind of art yes. you can make and not make, especially according to the church. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's, a, there's an article in Mental Floss called Overdosing on Beautiful Art. Mm. I, I thought that, that was interesting. But 
when when we segued the last time we spoke into this, we were talking. We got onto the topic of women and empathy, and that fascinated me. And I have a very um, high count of female listeners, so I, I wanted to dive into that with you because you. Have- I just wanted to just wanted to tag on to your experience mm-hmm. without leaving it behind. What's most significant to me about it is not uh, that it was triggered by a beautiful object, which is fine. Um, and not secondary. It's just not what's my focus. My focus is what you were left with, your feeling experience, where it sent you, it wouldn't have sent anybody else there. Mm. And and those reflections become, if one allows them, you know, this is kind of, I hear what you're saying, something that you can experience, even though you don't understand it, or where is it coming from, or what does it mean? But if you stop to try to do that, you won't feel. Exactly. And that's... That's not a road that I can go in. Um, and, and just because you feel it doesn't mean you have to believe it and follow it. Feelings are not dogma. They're just feelings. Right. <laughs> and it isn't a bad thing to um, at all. There are people that I know that, you know, they're listening to music all day long and they, they get to this state of euphoria. It helps them have a better day, whatever it is. And, you know, I'm using music as an example. Mm-hmm. And I think, God, what what is it that happened in my life that's happened in friends of my life where we we cut ourselves off from that because of a fear of getting swept up, of having the feeling overwhelm us and overtake us. Yeah, I think I think your 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 answer is in the question. You know, mm-hmm. you you put a limit on what it's safe to experience based on partly on on family norms, but of course the family is grows out of the larger culture. So, you know, we focus a lot on on family-centric stuff. I don't think we focus enough on culture-centric stuff because that's what informs the family. It doesn't drop from the sky. <laughs> right. And so the norms of the family as interpreted through, you know, through the family, but they're really coming from the culture. So they're norms that you then encounter in a different and a more powerful form once you leave the family. And it can, if there's been no work done, it can reinforce those norms. Mm-hmm. In this case, don't feel that, don't feel this, that's okay. Right. So how does that play into talking about things like the differences in our ability to feel empathy between men and women? Well, I think, I think before I would jump to, to that polarity, um, which I think it can be, not a duality, but a polarity, meaning they partake of one another, uh, I would want to talk a little bit about what empathy is and what okay. it means. First of all, what empathy means is that you're feeling. So if you're truly in an empathic mode, you may be feeling vicariously somebody else's experience, or you may be exploring your own capacity to move into other forms of being and feeling. But you're feeling. So that's an important thing to say, because a lot of times people aren't feeling. Right. Most of the time, people aren't feeling, you know, we, we keep a running tab on what we're thinking, but we don't keep a running tab on what we're feeling. Not consciously, not, not usually in a progressive way. Often we'll get caught on something and start to spin. Yes, and I think for a lot of us that don't realize that we are highly empathic, you do walk around for quite a number of years feeling like you're insane because you suddenly feel 
something that, you know, is new to you and it's after being around someone else, it's what they're feeling. You take it on as your own and you don't have the tools. You've not been told what this is. You don't know that you can say, whatever doesn't belong to me, you know, can, can leave. <laughs> so you just you know, feel like you're just torn and insane all the time. Of course, because again, because the cultural norms don't condone what you're experiencing. It wasn't until 1977 that a guy named Heinz Kohut wrote a book called The Restoration of the Self. It really introduced empathy formally. He was the president of the psychoanalytic world at that point. And, and prior to that, it had all been about the cerebral interpretation. And, and this guy turned the tide a little bit and said, it's really about resonating with the other person empathically. And, you know, it wasn't shortly after that that he got ejected from the psychoanalytic society right. and started, started his own movement called self-psychology, which was quite successful. But I, I think, you know, if so late in its, uh, you know, in its career, so to speak, psychoanalysis gets empathy in the late 70s. Not that it wasn't going on before, but formally. Um, you, can, you can see it as a reflection of, of, of the norms, but the norms are changing, you know. Feelings becoming more permissible. And in some ways, it's being demanded, sensitivity. Right? The Me Too is all about right. be sensitive to the person, to the woman, to the person that you're with, and, and that what you're doing isn't in some way offending them. Mm. That, that, that requires feeling. So I think it's, the norms are changing. On, on the other hand, I feel that what can happen is they can get cliched. Yes. And, and then, we're, then we're in, you know, sort of, for Michael land, we're not really feeling, we're just going through the motions, you know, we're politically correct, but it doesn't mean anything. It's hollow. Yeah. it still isn't taken seriously uh, enough, obviously, but I I'm glad things like the me too movement happened. It's a long time coming, but uh, painting someone as unstable or too easily offended, you know, all those things that you can put on, on someone, um, just you know it's so detrimental and it i think it causes mental illnesses to do those things because of the shame involved in you know telling someone that what they're feeling is somehow bad right or, or wrong. not real or wrong yes and i would i would agree with you not so much on opinion although i would on opinion but on Clinical experience, it, it does make people crazy, it, and especially people that are oppressed. Women, people that are oppressed under those conditions are told because what they're experiencing doesn't line up with the norms that they're nuts. And that's what's changing, at least with regard to women and men, which might be an interesting lead into the, to the empathy, right? Right. There's a demand that women are making now that's been around since the early feminist years in the 70s, right? And, and, and certainly feminism has taken on a lot of different forms and we could talk about that but the basic thrust of it is to try to get something clear about what female identity is in relationship to male identity mm. it's interesting i had a conversation with a friend of mine who is a psychotherapist and he he was trying to tell me that i um i abdicate my femininity to other women and I'm one of those people that I will listen, even if I think something really doesn't fit right, but I'll, I'll listen to that. He also 
uh, had some interesting thoughts around, well, you know, wear makeup more or uh, wear a dress sometimes. And it was so great because a younger me, since I was so controlled by the men Hmm. in our family, and that is where I um, believed power came from, was from men, which is why I wanted to be a man when I was a younger child. I, I, I immediately saw that as the power place, but it was the first time in my life where I took something that a friend said, who's not a bad person at all. He's just got some interesting ideas around what femininity, femininity is. And I didn't swallow it whole because he's a man. I actually sat there and said, oh man, you need to stop saying these things, especially <laughs> in front of women, because this is bullshit. <laughs> what is it, 1952? <laughs> exactly. Like, abdicate my femininity. Whose definition of femininity are you saying I'm abdicating? Because I don't wear a dress and don't want to wear makeup all the time? Oh, be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, that's some scary stuff. Now, see that there's there's where some real blindness still still is, but that's okay, right? Because, you know, my take on feminism is just my take. You know, I was raised in the '70s, so when feminism first came along, the idea, the feeling I got reading H. and Rich, reading these people, was was you know, Gloria Steinem hadn't come by yet. You know, it was it was softer, it was strong. But it was the invitation was soft. The invitation, at least as I understood it, was, "Hey, look at this mess you've made. <laughs> Listen to us. Let's collaborate and and make something better. Right. Fix this. Right. That was the invitation. And then and then somewhere along the line, eighties, nineties, it became, "I want to bang bang like you bang bang equal pay equal bang." It's like, wait, that wasn't what this was about. This wasn't about that kind of equality. It's not like everybody jumping on the dung heap of the white male problem and getting their due. You're right. But you know, that's Snoop Doggy Dog. That's all of it. It's called mm. co-optation. And you know, when I first heard rap music, it scared me. <laughs> now Snoop Doggy Dog is a Disney ride. All due respect to the man. <laughs> but I mean it, you know, I, I don't know that I would have made any different choices, you know, g- given w- w- whatever the context. But the point is, is that that's how it gets handled. You don't hear about it. It doesn't become a threat. It doesn't remain a threat. That's not unintentional. You know what it makes me think of is when I've been in a relationship with a male who is extremely narcissistic and to you know the capacity of it being malignant narcissism, and I try to go in soft and I continue to not be heard, and so I get louder and louder and louder. It makes me think of what you just said about we started soft and we wanted to collaborate. And I think we weren't heard. And so the continuation of not being heard pushed many of us women into a, a place of we've got to be louder. We've got to be more forceful. We've got to attack what we feel is attacking us in the same way that they're attacking in order to be heard. And it, it becomes this collective hysteria, which if you say that, a bunch of women are going to look at you and go, how dare you use that term hysteria? But that's it for me. I've felt in those kind of relationships, even with my father, who is absolutely a sociopath, I felt this need to 
he, he's not hearing me as I'm soft, which is very powerful. That's one of the most powerful things that you know can come from our femininity is that ability to be soft. But if you're not heard, some of us get louder and you know, get to a place of hysteria, as I said. Does that make more well, sense? I, yeah, yeah, well, no, it makes a lot of sense. And it's a great rebuttal to, to, to what I said. Um, and certainly it makes sense. Um, the, the only thing I would point out is like, you know, read the poetry of Adrian Rich, you know, and her whole story. Mm. You know, this is a woman who, who went to, you know, the, the best schools, Ivy League, and, you know, learned from the best poets, just wanted to be a poet and became as, as good, if not better than any of the men. And then, you know, a little bit into her life outside of college, she's got a couple of kids and she's living this life. She's like, what, what did they teach me? <laughs> right? And she tries to help her husband sort of get it, but he can't get it. But the poems that she writes, they're not mean. They're not angry. They're strong, though. Mm. So I think there can be that strength that you're talking about without the co-optation. And I guess that's my point is, is get strong. But don't lose the aim. The aim is not to join us and be equal to or superior to us. What we've got is crap. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I felt in the 70s like, oh, good. We're going to save each other and you're going to lead the charge. And now it's like, you want to you you have equal power over the drones as we do and get paid as much? Wow. That's very let's different. Let's examine that because I think maybe that, you know, could be taken in a different way because I, I hear what you're saying. It isn't that we don't deserve to have equal pay. That's not the, the point. No, it, that it's that we're, we're wanting somewhere we shifted into wanting things that are not going to get us where we're wanting to go. Yes. Or I would put it differently. And this sort of relates to what we've talked about, about the feeling life model. Get equal pay. It should be a given already. It should be presumed, but it's not. So fight for it. I'm all for that. But it's not going to bring the, the, what, the, what the real goody is. The real mm -hmm. goody is, why do you want equal pay? Because I want to stand on an equal footing and have equal power with you so that I can have equal say in the way of the course of things. Because mm -hmm. your course direction stinks. <laughs> <laughs> and it needs a little correction. See, that, that, I think, is the deeper invitation. Agreed. That also makes you need to pause. And we get so caught up in the fever of things that we forget about the pause and how powerful the pause can be. Which is, a, you know, a really nice lead-in, unintended, to women and empathy. Because, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things we were talking about is how, not, not in any absolute way, but women, by and large, tend to feel and have more access to their feelings than men. And by virtue of all kinds of things, we could say that. But because of that, there's also a greater capacity for the development of empathy, which you find more of naturally in women than you do in men. It's not that the capacity isn't there in a man. It just has to be more awakened than it does usually in a woman. And it's oftentimes awakened by a woman. Well, that's what we were talking women. about. Or several women. Right. <laughs> and it keeps needing awakening. Then you've got a different problem. <laughs> but the, the, the issue we were talking about or the situation was when 
uh, a man, not not consciously, you know, unwittingly, and the women woman find each other in a way where his inability to access his own feeling life is somehow given a flame by the woman's natural capacity to be much more a in touch with her own feeling life and be therefore more capable of resonating with his even when he's not feeling it it's a very seductive invitation mm -hmm. and if there's not a lot of consciousness there that's a great recipe for one of my most hated words codependence <laughs> That's another radio show about that word, <laughs> but basically, by which I mean there's, there's a there's a bad faith agreement going on. That's going to break down sooner or later. Right. It's, it's not like oh, codependence. You're doing something wrong. No, it's a. It, it describes that there's there's some kind of exchange that works for you now, but it won't in the long run. Not, not unless it's exhumed and really looked at. Hmm. Yeah, and I th I think. What I've seen just in a long-term relationship that I've been in with my ex-husband and that we're still in each other's lives, what's wonderful about having this 33-year relationship and going through all the things that we went through is um, the, the sort of grace around being able to go back and ask questions about our relationship um, that at the time, maybe I didn't have the level of awareness needed or he didn't or we both didn't, whatever the reasons were, but I can, those those things come up later and I can go, remember that when that happened, what was that about? And we get, continue to grow in this relationship um, because we are still in each other's lives and you get the benefit of continuing to learn and grow from it. Whereas if you and I'm not saying everyone should, you know, stay forever in, in their ex's life, but there's some value to sticking things out over the long haul because of what you learn from that relationship that you, you learn as you get older and you're wiser and you pause more and you, your consciousness grows and so on. So you have the ability to look at those earlier things and go, let's examine that a little further. Am I making any sense? <laughs> Yeah, you are. It, you know, it's a very special thing you're describing this friendship uh, with your, your ex-partner, now your friend, because, you know, who else could you look back on the kinds of things you're talking about with the same kind of resonance but him? Not, no one. And yet he, there you guys are together and neither him with, with regard to you. And that's such a great result. And I, I wish I saw more of it in, in my life and my practice. What I see, sadly, is that Injuries happen early on that become such a toxic, unconscious nature, sometimes explicitly, sometimes, you know, inwardly, um, that they, they just mar things. And it becomes, it isn't impossible, but it becomes impossible for, for, for many people, many couples at that point to, to get over how horribly marred they feel by what the other person did to them. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that is where I take issue with how the word forgiveness is used. Mm. Um, because to me, forgiveness is something so incredible and it's watered down version, a sort of um, candy in a dish version. So doesn't sit well with me. It's so, it goes so much deeper 
you know, than, than what people slap on that term for and, and why people run from it. But I love looking back and forgiving myself for things, forgiving him, um, mm -hmm. knowing that I remember feeling so hurt and betrayed in a certain situation and have and be able to look and think about it and see it in a completely different way later. Whereas if I had just cut off that relationship, I would have worked these things out with other people. I'm really grateful that I got to work it out with the same person. Right. So we have a history to look back on. And and also I would imagine a, a, a very, uh, a very, to a large degree, a growing uh, field of empathy between. Absolutely. Each other. I mean, in terms of what we're talking about. And, and so there's, there's one, you know, I'm the king of the obvious. That's all I do, right? <laughs> the obvious. But that's one obvious thing right there. The more, the more conscious feeling becomes, the greater the pool of empathy between you, the world, whatever becomes. Empathy in that point means mutual understanding of the relationship between yourself and the other person, between yourself and the world. I think that's what we spend a lot of time trying to figure out whether we do it running or sitting or in whatever way we do it, exercising, you know, what's my relationship to the world? Right. And trying to find the most meaningful balance between all the dimensions of that. That's different for every person. You can't do it without feeling. <laughs> no, you, you can't. And you're stripping yourself of all that is the best of humanity. If you, you know, try to run away from your feelings. Have you heard of the term um, empath, someone being an empath? Sure, sure. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, the, the, way I, the way I think about it is uh, some people are more gifted in, 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 in the uh, act of empathy than others, right? Some people are so gifted that they are psychics, mm. you know, um, which is just a, another step into empathy. Um, for me, it's not a big step at all. It's just another step in empathy is already non-material moving into the psychic is just moving deliberately into the non-material. Um, it's a way of moving out of yourself and taking up form in, 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 in others, whether it's a tree or a person or a landscape, but not staying there too long before you forget yourself. Right. You know? It's a trip. That's empathy. Or, <laughs> So if you want to know the real word for it, or of which empathy is a subcategory, the word is imagination. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what powers empathy. Interesting. So why is all of this so fascinating to you? This, the work that you do, the art that you create, you know, being a psychotherapist, what, what was it that attracted you to having this kind of um, work-related you know, output into the world? Um, I'd have to say that however consciously or unconsciously, I spent a good uh, part of my life experiencing discomfort, I'll put it mildly, uh, at various turns when I came up against certain norms, whether it was in university or in the real world or in business, wherever it happened, it, there was a barrier to communication. No one would go the next step. Um, and so, you know, what I eventually evolved for myself, especially through my 30 years of, 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 
private practice, um, was just a, a study that wasn't hemmed in by those norms of the material and the non-material dimensions of, of human being. And by being able to explore those freely, not as separate, but as one process, but as distinct, um, it allowed me to move into and embody certain ideas that appealed to me at a much younger age, but really fill them out. Because the reason they spoke to me at a younger age is because I was, in a way, discomforted or suffering then by the same squeeze of norms that I had eventually uh, transcended and found an alternative to. You feel like that as you've aged, it's, you know, the things that you believed were how you're supposed to be, which is normal. That word is, you know, thrown around all the time. And as you have aged and where you're at now, um, it's just so much more acceptable, maybe because you just don't care anymore or you realize that being abnormal is actually the way to live in your imagination, which is a much more compelling and exciting place to live. I guess, yeah, normal never had a, 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 a big pull for me, gravitational pull. But, you know, then again, I was, I was raised in a, in a TV set, you know, in, in the middle of Hollywood. And, and so the norms that I imbibed early on were, were all kind of, uh, you know, skewed. I mean, I say that half jokingly, but only half jokingly. <laughs> right. Yeah, but you know, you you abut normal with that's what you're told, especially the way you you know grew up. You, we are told through film and TV and so on that this is the life that you're supposed to be living. This is what's normal. This is what you should strive for. And so you you're this extremely empathic, creative human being. You don't want normal, but there's always, or it seems like to me, there many times there's the fight. It's not that you want to be normal. Some people do, but some people do not like you, but there's still a fight against everyone else's belief that you should strive to be normal and you kind of fighting against that too. And that can become its own war and mental illness and all kinds of, you know, internal struggle. No, I didn't mean to, yeah, I didn't mean to discount what you were saying. There's, um, yes, there's a pervasive fear. I think that everyone has of being called out by the other, Mm-hmm. as a phony as a whatever you know that that's that's part of the whole existential yeah 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 <laughs> but, right. you know terence mckenna once said about that oh that was also five minutes ago <laughs> but any it's it's still pertinent you know <laughs> so yeah i think everyone ha- has that fear the the sense that i have in my work and i'm speaking more as a psychotherapist is that what what people i what i've seen people find the most satisfaction from is finding something that fits for them in their relation to the world that they can then actually take out into the world and, and do something with either in the foreground or the background, but without that plugged in, it doesn't really matter what they do. Mm. So what would be an example of, you know, plugging in for someone, just an example? Um, well, I guess in terms of, of what I'm talking about, I, I had a patient once who was, um, he had been a photographer and it hadn't really panned out for him. And his uh, friend invited him to work in the uh, in financial industry, which he had absolutely no interest in doing, but he did it. 
And within six years, he, you know, he was massively successful and really good at it. Um, not that he loved it, but he didn't hate it. And he had a, and he had a wife and two kids at that point. Um, but he came to me and, and what, what we were talking about was this, uh, this passion of his. And so he started, he exhumed it and he started to take photographs again. And it wasn't just about taking pictures. Something happened to him when, you know, he went through that experience and he produced some really good images. Um, and some of them started to sell and he started to cut down on his work in the office. And it wasn't like he wanted to be a big famous photographer. That wasn't the point at all. He was just able to make enough money at both things to stay comfortable, but also to, to feed something in himself that, that felt truer. And it helped him expand his sense of, of who he was in relation to the world in a, in a way that made sense, in a way that had, here's the word, meaning. Mm-hmm. Meaning is a real thing, and it isn't something we invent. It's there, like rocks. We have to find it. We have to understand how to decipher it in relationship to ourselves by establishing clear relationships to the world. And if we go by what we're given in the materialistic canals we're told to live in, we're not going to get much to go on. No. I don't care how much therapy we have. Exactly. I always say this to people that, you know, they're an author or they are, you know, an artist in some way. And they, they'll come to me and say, I just want to do that. You know, I just want to be able to be successful at that. And I say, well, you know, I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> stamp out your dream. That could possibly happen for you. However, if you're talking about turning your art into what helps you eat, that it becomes your primary source of income, you you better be really okay with with that, um, because sometimes for some people, when they when they go on that journey, they start to hate the very thing that gave them life because they turned it well, into because, well because it gets so hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but and I want to compliment that or supplement that by saying saying something else also, which is just the way that I come at it is a little bit different. I I become more interested in what's what's your idea, right? If you said to me, I want to accomplish X, right? I wouldn't say, well, was that practical or impractical so much, even though I think it, obviously. <laughs> but I'd be more interested in, and if all that worked out, what would you have that you don't have now? Right. Because if you get to that thing, it's not deliverable by anything objectively acquirable. It's only deliverable by introspective work. Mm. You have to bring it with you. Or as Robert Haas once said in a great poem, he said, uh, because in the long, uh, hot afternoons, when we studied subtraction, we learned that if there was anything left over, you had to carry it. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I've taught. responsibility in it too, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes, absolutely. And Sometimes we just need, uh, and this is why therapy is so wonderful. We need, um, you know, that shift in perspective. So I, I spoke to someone who loves to write. He writes these incredible books, and he was so negative when I first met him. Oh, I hate that I have to do this job, you know, as an air conditioner. I just want to write all the time. And over the course of our friendship, my discussions with him—not that I was trying to, you know save him or anything. It was just, you know, natural discussions between friends. I would say, 
well, is it possible that because you're carrying around a lot of anger and bitterness and hatred every day when you go to work, um, is it possible for you to maybe change your perception a little uh, about your work and that I'm really grateful that I have this job, a, a skill that pays me well so that I can continue to eat and live you know, a comfortable life and it funds my art, which you know, doesn't fund me at this point in time. Right. But let me just ask you, what do you think he, he or she was able to take that in uh, on an intellectual level, clearly? And it's a beautiful sentiment. But if not taken in on a feeling level, it won't lead to anything. Yeah, it took him a couple of years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a couple of years. Yeah. And now he really does. I, it, I mean... I think he's at a different level of it, but I can tell. But that's what we're saying, I think, which is, you know, are you committed to doing the feeling work? It's a big mm -hmm. part of it because the feeling worth, oh, feeling and all that, you know, feeling, all the stuff that gets said about feelings, overblown, underblown, as opposed to what's accurate about them scientifically, right? Um, are you committed to doing that work? Because it leads to places that are important for you and that are, expand your self-knowledge and your understanding of your relationship to the world, which is going to be good for you and everybody. Right. But it's going to take that kind of work. And guess what? You don't get paid for it. No one really looks at it as anything worth doing, you know, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. You know, so you, you have to be willing to say, okay, well, if I, you know, am going to believe in this, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get the same kind of uh, kudos that Kanye West gets. Right. <laughs> but, I have a question for you around that and when we can, you know, we can close with, with this topic unless we come up with something else. But what have you talked about with patients or your views on people like a Kanye West or Snoop Dogg or whatever, and they are the definition or a definition of what's considered successful, um, and why that happens for some people and it doesn't for others and why that question is there about why it happens for people and not, you know, some people and not for others. Well, that's a nice tiny question. <laughs> Give me about four hours and we'll, we'll tackle that. Encapsulate it and then <laughs> we'll pick it up. I'll throw a few things at the wall, but as first, just as, you know, in all respect, Kanye, it, it, in my view, unless it's an act, there's, there's really something mentally a little off there. Absolutely. But there's an immense amount of, talent and seduction and all of that. So God bless him. But there's something way the way he went up on that stage in the, I mean, you know, right. fine. It, it, unless it's just a, a way of, you know, drawing attention. He's either really smart or a little tweaked, you know, and maybe a little bit of both. And, um, and uh, I'm sorry. The, I'm sorry. Who else did you mention? I mentioned Snoop Dogg, but you know, you yeah, could say Snoop, Oprah, Snoop. you could say Tony Robbins. Well, no, I would say. no, I would say Snoop Dogg is, you know, for me, I like to go individual. Snoop Dogg for me is a very different kind of guy. He really came up from it. He, he suffered. He, he's, he's paid dues in all kinds of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, it, the, the reason, the only reason I brought it up earlier was that, you know, it, it's, it's an, the example of co-optation, you know, this thing that's frightening and that you have this real message and then suddenly you start to get a paycheck from the man and your message doesn't matter so much. You just keep hitting the beat mm. and you don't stand outside the circle and say, I appreciate the paycheck, but listen, I still have something to say. That doesn't happen. 
Interesting. So, you know, that, that would be my only criticism, but I wouldn't criticize him. I mean, who the hell am I? I mean, like I said, I'm who, who would not make the choices he made under those circumstances. There's no, there's, there's no judgment of anybody. Certainly not from me. Uh, not in that respect. I just always look at, um, I know some incredible people, incredible minds, uh, incredible talent, and they, you know, they they consider me friends as well. We work together, and the perceptions of of who they are from other people or people that try to get to them through me, I always find that fascinating because I I. I call it baby bird syndrome. This person that wants to get to somebody else for, because what their success, they think their success is going to rub off on them or they think if they know that person that that's going to elevate their position in life. It, it so seems like such a one-dimensional uh, goal to, you know, and I'm just using myself as an example here, to come it reminds to me of, uh, Kristen, it reminds me of like uh, when I w- lived in LA and go to a party, you know, one of these Hollywood parties, whatever. And whoever you would meet, they would look at you for a little while, and then they'd look around like, "Are you more important than somebody?" Mm-hmm. I gotta go. Bye. See ya. <laughs> nice to meet you. You know, and that was always in the air. Like, who are you? How much do you mean? How important are you? And you know, you're always being assessed in that way. And I think that's the opposite of of what we're talking about, exactly. or what I'm talking about when we talk about the feeling life. We're not we're not assessing people in that way at all. Uh, we're approaching things from a, from you know another angle altogether. And it, it takes it takes an amount of courage, like you said. And I, I do think on the topic of women and empathy, I think women, I'll just say, I think women have a lot more to teach men here than men have to teach women, that's for sure, just generally speaking. Yeah, and my friends would agree with that also, male and female. Um, I love dispelling the idea that uh, just because you reach some place of success that somebody else or society or whoever deems is successful, um, that does not mean that you don't have angst, that you don't get depressed, that you don't wonder, what am I doing? Many people don't walk around in that outside perception of themselves. They're just themselves. Agreed. If anything, I would say, the, you know, I grew up around watching this. The more successful people became that I saw, the, the, the more the ante went up in all of those feeling areas. And, and the more there was to lose. So it was, it, there was more pressure. Right. But success didn't bring relief, it, it, but a need for maintenance. And those, those who could maintain it well did. Those who didn't went crazy. Easy place to go crazy, I'll tell you. Absolutely. And... Um, you know, what we're going to continue to explore about the feeling life. I so love that saying. I love how the emphasis on how important that is. It, it is, and yet it's washed aside so much in society, probably out of fear, I would think, or just... Um, I would. The word I would use would be less judgmental, would be aversion, a sort aversion. of instinctual aversion or, so, or mm-hmm. like a soul-like aversion because it's so, you know, uh, unfamiliar. But I, th- I think the one thing I would say about the feeling life, because it's, it's so many things, right? It's you right. Know, you about a whole dimension of, uh, of, of living and, and the universe and all of it, right? Um, it's ultimately mysterious. Yes. It's, there are mysterious elements. That doesn't mean it's not definable and you can't figure out this and this and this, 
But ultimately, just like the world that physics explores, it's all, they can't tell you what's the ultimate. Here, it's this, right here. No, it's ultimately mysterious, as is this, as, as hopefully it will always remain, because that's the nature of it. The only thing, as I've said to you in private before, is when are we going to see the day when half of the table that belongs to science is allotted to those of us who want to study and explore non-material empirical science? Mm-hmm. Right? Not spirituality, non-material. They study material empirical. I want to study non-material empirical with others. We'll figure it out. Trust me. <laughs> exactly. So I'm so glad you're doing this. Listeners, you know how I am. I go on these windy roads with people. This was our first uh, show out of the gate. It's going to only get more interesting. These obviously are not scripted. Maybe sometimes we'll have some questions that we ask, but, um, you know, you're listening to two highly empathic people figure out what the hell and where are we going with this conversation? That's interesting to me. <laughs> so, me too. <laughs> so David, tell, I wish, our, and I wish I had a script just for my part, but at several points, but I didn't. So yeah. Just, and it's okay. I mean, I, I, there are times during a conversation with someone like you and you where I think, Oh, I'm doing a bad job as an interviewer. I'm not staying on point. I'm this or that. And at the end of it, that gives me a rush. Mm. And I love that. Mm-hmm. To me, that's embracing the mystery. That's embracing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and, get it. And so even though I can go down this road of feeling insecure or, oh, I've got it, or it's okay. It, that doesn't, it, maybe it scares me, but it doesn't scare me to the point of not doing it because I right. get such a rush out of it. I love it. And that's right it. on point with what we're talking about, right? It's like, okay, so, but if you didn't feel you wouldn't get to any, we wouldn't have that conversation we just had. Very true. You had to allow yourself to feel scared yeah. and allow yourself to feel panicked, then allow yourself to think and feel, wait a minute, I have other equipment and tools to met. And you, you move like you're moving down rapids, but it was through conscious feeling. Mm, good point. Nobody's doing that, Kristen. Yeah. Nobody sees true. the value. Do you know how different the world would be if everybody was doing that? Oh, it would be amazing. <laughs> Who knows what it would be? I mean, would, energy problems would probably be solved overnight. <laughs> exactly. Ex- yeah. And we would have fun while we're doing exactly, it. Exactly, right? Part. We get one big step closer to Eden, big time, you know, at least. Yeah, and what real connecting is with another person, yourself and with someone else. When you get that charge, which is why I do this, where like I'm going to be high, naturally high for an hour and a half after this conversation it, because it's, because it's, I love to live there. So, um, you know, more of that, please. And you're right. If everybody wanted more of that, please, and, and would take the risk to um, go there, you're right. There, we would have a whole different world we're living in. But, but you know, you, you, you know, what you talked about was the payoff for it. Like, even though it was difficult to feel scared, and right? But the preamble to that is all the years you spent dealing with feelings you really didn't want. Yeah. All that stuff. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to. That's what people are running from. That's what nobody wants to do. And you know what? I can't blame them. That's but true. you don't do it. You can't get to your infinite self unless you take your finite self into very deep consideration first. Oh, that is a great nugget of information right there. It's like, uh, it's all this work that you do with um, therapy and, you know, whatever your, your emotional self, your feeling life. 
is the uh, muscle building mm. to be able to do this later. Right. That's, that's right. That's why it's the first book. Now it doesn't make it lesser than anything. The feeling life is, will always be the foundation, but yes, it's what you get from the feeling life, the familiarity with yourself, your relation, how it informs your relation to the world, your relation to the mystery. And then you can go to the next level where you're like, okay, now how, how am I still trapped in, right. in the right? And, and that's where you get into the thought forms because it's more complicated there. It's not just about, oh, feel, feel, feel. Feel, feel, feel is important, but it's not going to, it's not going to take us all the way to America. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. Tell our listeners where they can find out more about you. Well, my, my website right now is a uh, Klugman studios. That's K L U G M A N studios at, um, dot com, dot com, Klugman studios.com. And you can find out anything you need there about me generally. And if you need to contact me, you can also find that out. So yeah, feel free to poke around. Well, I'm excited that you're on the network. I'm grateful to your brother, Adam, who also has done shows with us um, for introducing me to you. And um, I, I look at my calendar and I have people like you on it and I go, oh, I love what I do. <laughs> well, it's been a joy for me too. I look forward to, we're on for Monday, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. All so, right. Well, I'll talk to you then. Absolutely. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. There'll be more of this. Go down the road with us. Have your own road. And thank you for tuning in to The Feeling Life, a new series on Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.